All right, good morning, y'all. That was fun. Cutest part of the morning. All right, we are continuing uh, our sermon series, um, Holier Than Thou. Uh, and uh, we're actually coming into the final stretch. We have two sermons left in this series, and uh, we've covered a lot of ground. Um, these final two sermons are two cars on the same train. They are two pieces to the same story. Today is the, uh, the lesson, next week's the lab. So th this morning we're going to be covering uh, some ground as far as uh, some big ideas. Um, and then next week we're going to be talking about how those big ideas play out in the nitty-gritty of real relationships, okay? So, so these two lessons go together. Um, and so why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles and flip open to, uh, to Mark 15, Mark 15. Go ahead and open your apps. If you don't have a Bible, go, go ahead and grab one off the chairs around you in our Bibles. We're going over to page 852. While you're flipping over there, I'm going to let you know this morning we're going to be talking about power. Um, this is a topic that uh, we don't like to talk about, but we sure like to have it, right? Um, we, uh, we like power. We just don't like to admit it. Nobody wants to be considered power hungry. That is never a compliment in our culture. Uh, but the reality is we are hungry for power. Um, power is what gives us the ability to get what we want. Power is what enables us to keep what we have. Power is what enables us to get others to work with us. And if necessary, to work for us. Power is necessary for life. But because power is uh, effective in getting things done, it's also very alluring uh, in a deceptive way, right? Lord Acton famously said, power tends to corrupt. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Um, but I think it's actually novelist William Gaddis who's, who said it a little bit more on point. He says, power doesn't corrupt people. People corrupt power. Because here's the thing, there's no life without power. There's, there's, there's no way to grow without power, to change without power, to build something new without power, to reform something that is old without power. Power isn't the problem. In fact, power is simply the ability to get something done. It is our ability to accomplish something worthwhile. It is a tool given to us by God, and it is necessary for us to actually carry out the image of God. God exercised power when he created the world, right? God created ex power, exercised power when he created us in his image. And then he exercised power when he empowered us to walk in that image. And he entrusted power to us. Power isn't the problem, right? Power is simply a tool. The problem is when we take the tool of power and we turn it into a weapon of domination. When we stop exercising the tool Stop using power for the fullness and flourishing of life and instead turn it into a weapon for the fullness and flourishing of my life when it becomes a weapon. See, the power that the world seeks, worldly power, the, the kind of power that God does not endorse, 
enforces its will on others in order to keep what it has and get more, in order to keep comfort, keep affluence, keep influence, um, keep significance, keep what it has and, and get more, even if it comes at the expense of others who do not have it. It works through threats of loss and promises of gain. So it feeds on our fear and it feeds on our greed to manipulate and to control the environment, the systems, and the people around us. Worldly power is designed to protect and exalt the self at the expense of the other. The power of holiness is very different. The power of holiness is rooted in love and it is fruitful in generosity. It rests in the security of the love of God even as it exercises its power to be generous in love to others. So here's kind of our big idea for this morning. You're either going to rely on the power of love to secure the change you desire, or you're going to rely on your love of power. And those are two very different paths to walk. So let's take a look at our text. We're going over to Mark 15, looking, uh, we're going to start in verse 1 and, and jump around a little bit. I'm not going to read the entire chapter, but I'm going to warn you in advance, this is the passage about the crucifixion of Christ, and uh, it is heavy. Um, and, uh, and so just to, to give you a little bit of of heads up where we're going with this. Mark 15, starting in verse 1, and as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things, and Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Drop down to verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming up from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh but he did not take it, and they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying he saved others, he cannot save himself. 
Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, uh, just so you know, I mean, this is a passage that I do not approach flippantly. I mean, I don't, I don't approach, I try not to approach any scripture flippantly, but you know, there are some passages that are very easy just to flip to and read through. This isn't one of them for me. I mean, this is, this is dark and solemn and sacred territory, and uh, I don't go to this text this morning as a convenient launching pad into some related idea. Um, we're coming to this passage today because we're talking about holiness. And if you're going to talk about Jesus as the embodiment of holiness, you are eventually going to have to come and stand in the horrific shadow of the cross. Today, the cross is a comfortable symbol for us. It is important for us to remember what the cross really was and what it really meant, right? We, we wear it as jewelry. We hang it on our walls. We tattoo it on our bodies. But in the first century, the cross was the ultimate symbol of degradation and powerlessness. It was a symbol of terror. Someone who was hung on the cross wasn't just killed. They were humiliated and dehumanized. They were put on public display in their weakness and their shame. People who were crucified writhed in pain in front of an audience. There was no way to hide. They were always done publicly. He was crucified on Golgotha, a hill that was raised where everyone could see it. And those that writhed in pain often did it for extended times because it would often take days for someone to die of crucifixion because you didn't die from loss of blood. They were very, very care careful in how they crucified people. They didn't, they didn't cut the arteries. Um, it was excruciating but slow. The word excruciating itself is actually a testimony to how bad it was. The heart of excruciating is crux or cross. It's the heart. It's that, that word actually means of the cross. And it's our English word for the most painful imaginable experience, right? And so they would often for days um, writhe on the cross. Eventually they would succumb uh, to any number of, of ways of death, most often through suffocation, because as they hung, their body would become more and more exhausted, and it would expand their rib cage, and they would find it harder and harder to pull up in order to actually compress their lungs to take a breath. Their agony couldn't be hidden. Their shame couldn't be hidden. 
Their vulnerability couldn't be hidden. That was intentional. Their nakedness was on display intentionally. They lost control over every bodily function and every form of bodily dignity intentionally. See, there's a reason that the Romans used the cross. It was a very powerful way to influence people's behavior. It was a weapon of power, and it ruled through fear. Fear, to anybody who might stand on the side of possibly suffering the same agonizing punishment. Anybody who saw someone being crucified, and, and in the Roman world, it was impossible not to. They, like I said, they did it on hilltops. They did it on roadways. They did it at the entrance of cities. They wanted to make sure that anybody who was tempted to challenge them in a similar way would be terrified. It was a tool of intimidation. It was a tool that was meant to rob individuals of autonomy through the use of fear. But there's another side to the cross. There is the side, the front side, that is terrifying, but there's also the back side, which those who stood on that side would feel comforted. Because those who stood on that side of the cross saw the cross as a way of protecting their interests from those who would possibly take what was theirs to diminish their holdings, to threaten their security. The Roman cross was designed to protect those who were behind it by threatening those who were in front of it. Your experience of the cross totally depended on which side you stood. If you stood on the side that was intended to threaten you, you would feel the powerful dynamic of fear. If you stood on the side of it protecting you, your interests, your, your way of life. You saw it as a force that was positive in protecting you. So the cross made a worldly promise to both sides. Cross us and you'll be killed. Stand with us and you'll be protected. It's both a threat and a promise. It appeals both to greed and to fear. You best get in line. And if you do, there's reward. There's benefit. There's prosperity because we punish anybody who threatens the prosperity of those who stand with us. So as a result, it's not very surprising that most people throughout most human history try to stand on the backside of the cross. Every culture has its way of inflicting pain. Every culture has its way of punishing those who step out of line, who ultimately don't serve what is perceived as the greater good by those who exercise that power. And there is a temptation, there is an allure to stand in that place of privilege, to stand in that position of power because your interests are protected. This is why Jesus' behavior is so radically counterintuitive. Why it's so surprising 
while, while it is both radically inviting and deeply threatening. Because he stood on the wrong side of the cross. But he had the power not to. He had the ultimate power to protect himself. He had the ultimate power to create an insider group of privileged people of which he would stand at the lead and an outsider group of those who threatened that privilege and would be punished as a result. He was, after all, God in the flesh. Colossians 1, 15 through 17 puts it this way. He is the image of the invisible God. Uh, don't think about that as like a Xerox image. He's not a copy of God. He is the visible manifestation of an invisible reality. That's what that word means. He is the firstborn of all creation. Now again, that doesn't mean he's the first one created. It means he sits in the position of honor over creation. In the ancient world, the firstborn wasn't an order of birth. It was a position of honor, authority, and power. Jesus sat in the position of the firstborn. That's made clear by the very next sentence, right? For by him, all things were created, not all other things all things. He is the origin of everything that was created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Now catch this, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, he actually created the authority structures that the magistrate and pilot exercised. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Not only is he before all things, not only did he create all things, but through the exercise of his power, he holds all things together. Without the exercise of his power, everything would fall apart, including us. He holds all things together all the time. He created it for him, and he sustains it in him even as the magistrates misrepresented him and mocked him. Even as Pilate flexed his Roman authority in front of him, even as the guards scourged him and then drove spikes in his feet and his hands. Even as the passers-by mocked him, seeking to rob him of all dignity, and any sense of autonomy or personal power. He retained his power and he restrained his power. Even as they were working to take him apart, he was exercising his power to hold them together. This is the beauty and the mystery of the cross. They used their power to destroy him. He was a threat to their power. He was a threat to their security. He was a threat to their way of keeping what they had and getting more. So they sought to destroy him, to silence him, to inflict on him a public display that would be so violent and so intimidating, nobody would ever think of following in the same path by degrading him and dehumanizing him. 
all while he is exercising his power to love them. He didn't try to control them through fear. He didn't try to manipulate them through promises of prosperity. It's amazing when you look at the life of Christ and you look at the way he interacts with people. We looked earlier at his encounter. He's invited over to Simon the Pharisee's house and the woman from the city who was a sinner comes and anoints his feet with her tears and the alabaster box. He treated them the exact same. He gave them both the invitation of love. Only one of them responded. And afterwards, he responded to them in a way that was appropriate to their response to him because he was always truthful in his response, never manipulative. He always dealt with what was real and what was true. And if somebody was behaving in a foolish way, you better know he would let them know. Not because he was vindictive, not because he was trying to control them or manipulate them, but because in love, he was continually inviting them to respond to his love. It didn't matter if it was a Pharisee or a woman who was a sinner. It didn't matter if it was Peter or it was Judas. On the very night when Judas was going to betray Jesus, he washed his feet. He loved him and invited him even then to respond to his love. And then when it came time, he simply looked at him and said, what you're going to do, do quickly. Jesus vulnerably and honestly and humbly lived his life like this. Offering himself to everyone. Vulnerably giving himself to everyone. Giving the same invitation, the same honesty, the same vulnerability, the same presence regardless of their status or their, or their intent, regardless of whether they were friends or enemies, regardless of where they stood in regard to the worldly power structures. Because he was exercising a very different kind of power. He loved them and he called them to respond to his love. And some did, and many did not, because to love him, to respond to his love, they would have had to have repented of their love of power. They would have had to have stepped out from behind the cross where they were protected in their privilege and actually joined those in front of the cross who were vulnerable to attack. To respond to the love of Christ meant standing with Christ. Stepping away from the abusive power structures of the world to embrace the transformative power of love. So instead of stepping into that place of vulnerability to love and be loved, they exercised their power to silence him. His love was a threat to their power. So they killed him in an attempt to silence him. And somehow in the dark mystery of the cross, God worked his justice through their injustice. He exercised his holy power through their abuse of power. 
Jesus, the Son of God, became our substitute in judgment. He took our place and died our death, taking the weight of our sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us, 2 Corinthians 5.21, and died the death we deserve to die. It wasn't just the physical suffering of the cross. It wasn't just the emotional abuse of the passers-by. There was a deep and profound mystery that as Jesus hung there in the darkness, he was in fact becoming the Lamb of God sacrificed for the people of God. Taking the weight of our cosmic treason that we might be forgiven. And he extended his arms to receive it. He exercised his power not to fight it, not to avoid it, not to reject it, but to embrace it. When he could have protected and preserved his life, he willingly gave himself over to death. Now, we obviously have the privilege at our point in human history to look back at these events knowing that the degradation of the cross didn't have the final word. As bitter as the cross was, we know that it led to the empty tomb. When he had fully satisfied God in regard to our sin, he rose again. His death could not hold the glorious creator of life, and death died. And when death died... Death gave birth to resurrection. See, the empty tomb makes it clear that our sin did not have the last word. That God was satisfied in regard to the debt of our cosmic treason. That when he rose again, he rose not only for himself, but for us. He died the death we deserve so that he could invite us into the blessing that only he could earn. The empty tomb makes it clear that our sin did not have the last word. Love did. The empty tomb makes it clear that the love of power did not triumph. The power of love did The condemning humiliation of the cross was silenced by the glory of the empty tomb. But that doesn't mean that that's the last word that the cross has to say to us as followers of Christ. See, we love to look back at the cross as the place where Jesus secured our redemption the place where he won the battle we could never win so that he could give us the gift we could never earn. We love that. But the cross continues to call us, not simply to believe in his death, burial, and resurrection, but to walk out the dynamic of his life in our lives, to imitate the way of the cross and to embrace the power of love, and to reject the love of power. The cross calls us to lay down our love for power and to trust the power of love. 
In 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul put it this way. Now, again, we're going back to 1 Corinthians 1. This is, we were here last week. Remember in this context, uh, the Corinthians were a mess. Praise God for the Corinthians, right? Because we're a mess too, and it just gives me hope. And so uh, they, you know, in, in, in one we find out, you know, Paul's like, some of you guys, man, you're so divisive, you're so competitive, and you're all like running around like, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and ooh, we're really holy, I am of Christ, right? And so they were, they were breaking up into these groups and being divisive, of creating us and them, of right and wrong. We're the ones over here who are approved, and you're the ones who are rejected, and we found out that, that last week when we looked at the very next chapter that Paul says, I apply these things to us figuratively. In other words, the Corinthians weren't actually breaking into groups around Paul and, and Cephas and, and Apollos. They were breaking into groups around secondary issues that were dividing the body. Secondary issues that they thought were so important, they were making them primary issues to the point of saying, we're right, you're wrong. Yes, we both believe in Jesus, but, but we're in the group who are approved and you're in the group who are not approved. We are the right ones, you are the wrong ones. And Paul calls them out of this divisive spirit, this trap of pride. And in 1 Corinthians 1.18, he says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Um, so we read a verse like this, at least I did at a certain point, and, and, and I just thought, yeah, this, is, this makes a lot of sense, right? In evangelism, in, in sharing the gospel, if, if you share the gospel with somebody and they're like, yeah, I don't want to believe that, a risen Jesus, that's foolishness to them, right? They just don't believe it, right? But for me, who believes in the death, burial, and resurrection, it makes a lot of sense, right? It's like the power of God. But the context of First Corinthians 1 has nothing to do with evangelism. It has nothing to do with sharing the gospel with unbelievers. It is speaking to a group of believers who are being divisive against one another over secondary partisan issues, starting to feel superior toward one another because, because they had the right idea or the right platform or the, or the right candidate or the, or the right issue. And he says to them, you know what, you guys, let me remind you that the word of the cross is folly to those that are perishing. What is the word of the cross? The word of the cross is that the power of love is greater than the love of power. That at the end of the day, it's not by standing in the group of power that makes us secure. It's not by standing in the group of power that makes us important. It's not by standing with the right group that makes us significant. It's by standing with the crucified Savior. It's by standing in love. That's the word of the cross. The Corinthians were competitive and divisive, and they formed groups around secondary issues, groups of in and out to protect those who were in and to punish those that were out. They, they created, in other words, the dynamic of the cross. The problem was they created it the wrong way. They created dynamics that would protect us and punish them. We're on the inside. We're the good guys. You're the bad guys. And so you deserve to be punished. You deserve to be silenced. You deserve to be ostracized while we protect what we have and get more. The word of the cross 
exposes the foolishness of that kind of thinking. But the word of the cross is folly to those that are perishing, to those that are, are sold out to the power of love. That sounds like death. Why would I walk away from what makes me secure? Why would I abandon the power structures that make me important? Why would I step away from the things that protect what I have and enable me to get more? Why would I ever do that? Because of love. It's the only reason. The only thing that will ever get us to lay down the weapons of this world that enable us to dominate others, to take what we want, to keep what we have, to alienate those that we find threatening, to silence those that we don't like to hear, the only thing that will ever give us the courage to lay down those weapons is love. Disarming, humble, vulnerable love. The Corinthians... We're using their words to leverage power by grumbling, accusing, manipulating, slandering. They were using their wealth to leverage power by being generous to those who would benefit them, to those that would help further their cause, and ignoring those who, who either wouldn't benefit them or were hostile toward them. They, they used their pride to cast a shadow of shame on those who disagreed with them. For those of us who are being saved... Paul tells us, which isn't talking about our eternal salvation, it's talking about the outworking of our salvation, it's talking about not the holiness that's been given to us positionally in Christ, but the holiness we're growing into by becoming more like Christ. For those of us who are being saved, this is the wisdom and the power of God. As we're being delivered from our worldly addiction to self-interest and power, the cross speaks to us of a better power, a truer power. It speaks to us of humility and vulnerability, acceptance and love. It is a costlier power, but it's real power. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul says this, same context, just a little bit farther down in the, in the paragraph. And I, when I came to you, so Paul speaking to the Corinthians, brothers, didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So the Corinthians loved wisdom. They loved rhetoric. They were a hub of Greek culture. And they loved debate. They loved people who would show up and impress them with the poetry of their language, the impressiveness of their logic, the, the, the vitality of their rhetoric, right? They, they loved orators. And, and if you showed up and had that kind of, of verbosity, if you could string words together in really persuasive and powerful ways, you had power in their culture because they respected that. They honored that. They, they would open up doors for you. You would get hearings with the people of power. You would get respect. You would get traction. It's interesting that coming into that context, Paul, who is, by the way, incredibly intelligent, has the ability to put together a really good argument and knows how to put together really persuasive rhetoric, chose instead to be purposely clumsy, to be intentionally non-impressive. In a culture that valued wit, he chose to speak in a way that did not display his intelligence. 
not because he couldn't debate, but because he knew that if he won them with their temptation toward worldly power, he would win them to a greater experience of that power. If he met them in their idolatrous need to structure power according to artificial external measures, he would in fact strengthen their addiction to those power structures. He came not to meet them in those power structures, but to call them out of them. Not to endorse or to in any way sanctify worldly power structures, but to expose them for bankrupt and to call them to a greater form of power, the power of love. If he would have come and won the rhetorical debates, he would have lost the battle of love. If he would have stooped to pick up the manipulative weapons of this world, he would have lost the true power of humble, vulnerable love. See, the cross called him to stand exposed and vulnerable in love. It's interesting that he says, I knew nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. He doesn't say, I knew nothing among you but Christ and him raised from the dead. We like that. We like standing with the resurrected Christ in his power, in his glory, in his authority. Man, let's be like the lion of the tribe of Judah. But we get a little eschatologically confused, right? Jesus will come back as the lion. But right now, he's calling us to follow in the path of the Lamb. He calls him to know Christ and him crucified. In other words, he met them with the vulnerability of love, not the display of power. He met them with the invitation of grace, not the manipulative power of fear or greed. He didn't meet them in the worldly power structures that assigned value based on certain partisan convictions or or political powers or wealth, but called them out of that completely, exposing them for the bankruptcy that they are. Listen, y'all, the cross isn't just a historical event. It is a present power. It's not just something that happened to Jesus. It is a way of life that we are being called to foster and imitate in our lives as we follow Jesus. It's a way of life that's committed to the power of love instead of the love of power. So what does it mean for us to walk in the power of holiness? It means that we commit our ways to walking in the shadow of the cross, to resist the temptation of getting behind the cross, of leveraging our privilege to protect our interests, to keep what we have, to get more, to defeat our enemy, and stand instead in the humble, vulnerable position of loving our enemy, of loving those who stand opposed to us, loving those who are for us and with us, and loving those who would hurt us. And learning like Jesus not to take up the weapons of the world of slander, verbal abuse, manipulation, fear, intimidation. 
when someone works against me, but instead to learn to love my enemy even as I love myself. Offering them the same humble, vulnerable love God has loved me with. And if that sounds like foolishness, that's because it is if you're seeing the world through the wrong lens. The gospel calls us out of the bankrupt systems of power of this world to the true transformative power of love. To love even as we have been loved. Instead of allowing our hearts to grow hard in self-protection, hard toward those that we think have accused us or misrepresented us or or don't understand us, instead of allowing our hearts to grow cold toward those who actually seek to defeat us and claim some victory over us. Maintaining a soft heart, a heart that is softened by the love of God, seeped in the grace of God, and growing generous in love, even for those who work against us. Understanding, here's the thing, understanding that this moment is not all there is. See, that's the, that's the demonic temptation behind all of this, is to deceive us into thinking that this moment is all there is, and so I have to get what I'm going to get now or I'm never going to get it. I need to protect what I have now or I'm never going to be protected. I need to win now or I will never win. When the reality is the cross tells us that everything before the tomb is the prelude, everything that is real follows. We are living in the preface of life. We are not living in the main story. The true and better story comes on the other side of the resurrection. Live in light of that reality and it will lead you to walk in the path of the cross because the cross always leads to the empty tomb. And it is the message of God's love that frees us from the insane and diabolical approach to this life that leads me to treat those that God loves as if uh, they were my enemies and to take up the power structures of the world to, to protect myself or to abuse them as if somehow that increases my security or my significance or my affluence when it doesn't. That's all illusion. The cross exposes the deceits of this world. Let's live in the reality of what he has shown us. That the power of love is in fact greater than the love of power. And when we embrace the power of love, we embrace the true, transformative, enriching love of God. And all we're leaving behind are the deceptive lies of a demonic world system that would seek to entrap us, disempower us, and destroy us. All right, that's the lesson. Next week we get the, uh, the lab. Next week we talk. These are the big ideas. Next week, we're going to talk about how these big ideas play out in the nitty-gritty of actual human relationships here and now. So I hope you join me for that next week. Let me close this in a word of prayer, and then we're going to, sh to move into a time of ref uh, reflection and, and share communion, and, and uh, but let me pray for us now. Father, I, I thank you that you love us. I thank you, Jesus, that, that you were willing to set aside your comfort, 
your right to your glory and instead loved us so much that you walked the path of love all the way to the cross to demonstrate to us what it looks like to be vulnerable and secure in that vulnerability, to love and be secure in that love, to be generous but never impoverished, to win by apparently losing. Lord, will you increase our faith so that we can grow to see the way of the cross as the way to genuine fullness and flourishing of life? Will you set us free from the deception and the seduction of this world that tells us we have to win now, we have to defeat our enemies, we have to keep what we have and get more, when the reality is we've already been given everything in you. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. We are absolutely secure. We are absolutely enriched with the true riches of life. Give us the courage, Lord, to walk this path, even if it takes us through the shadow of the cross, because it will. To love those who are hard to love, to love those who don't love us, to be willing to not take out the weapons of this world in order to be strong in the true power of grace. Give us the courage, Lord, to follow you because you love us and you give us everything in your love. We thank you and we pray all of this in the mighty and beautiful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and all of God's people said.